0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Please join me in welcoming our television and webcast audience to today's program. My name is Jennifer Sloan. I'm president of the Canadian Club of Toronto. We thank our viewing audience for being with us. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to Toronto, to our province, and to Canada. Through our Youth and Young Leaders programs, civic action diversity partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media partnerships and social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. Thank you for joining our conversation today. Before I formally introduce our speaker, I'd like to tell you about some of our upcoming events this season. On June 11th, Greg Engel, CEO of Tilray, one of Canada's leading licensed producers of medical cannabis, will explore what's next for Canada and how our homegrown expertise can be exported to the world. On June 16th, Music Canada President and CEO Graham Henderson will discuss Toronto's position among the world's greatest music cities and the cultural, economic, and social benefits of a vibrant music economy. And on June 17th, direct from CBC's flagship news program, The National, join seasoned insiders Kathleen Monk, David Hurley, and Jamie Watt, as they discuss the current political landscape, including what is anticipated to be one of the most exciting Canadian federal elections in decades in front of this live Canadian Club of Toronto's audience. For a full listing of the club's events and to order tickets, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at cdnclubto.org or by using that hashtag. I'd like to welcome our invited youth and young leaders with us today. They are the Monk School of Global Affairs Students and Alumni Network and Civic Action Diversity Fellows. We want to thank EY, Tories LLP, Rogers Communications and Scotiabank for their generous support of our Youth and Young Leaders Program. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to introduce today's guest speaker. When the Honourable Jason Kenney last spoke at our podium just seven months ago, he held the portfolio of Minister of Employment and Social Development. This past February, he was appointed to the dual role of Minister of National Defence and Minister of Multiculturalism. Today, he will be speaking to us about our armed forces and the security challenges we face. As we are all too aware, we live in a tumultuous and turbulent times. From a security perspective, there is much cause for concern. Local and international terror threats, jihadist recruitment, ISIS, to name a few. As Minister of National Defense, Mr. Kenny is responsible for managing and directing the armed forces and all matters related to our national defense. This includes building and maintaining defense infrastructure and defense and safety-related research. Mr. Kenny's orientation to his new ministerial role has been swift. He has made visits to our troops here at home and further afield, Iraq. He is a Parliament Hill veteran, having been re-elected to the House of Commons five times since his initial election in 1997. Colleagues have called him the hardest-working parliamentarian in McLean Magazine's annual survey. His long list of federal involvement may bear this out. He has the distinction of being Canada's longest-serving Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, a role he held from 2008 to 2013. He was then appointed Minister of Employment and Social Development and Minister for Multiculturalism before taking on his new title. He chairs the Cabinet Committee on Operations, is the Regional Minister for Southern Alberta, and sits on the Cabinet Committees for Foreign Affairs and Security and Planning and Priorities. Minister Kenny, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium, Canada's podium of record, is now yours.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's great to be back uh, to the Canadian Club for a three-peat, three, three ministries and three invitations to this uh, podium of record in Canadian public affairs. So thank you, merci infiniment au Club Canadien de votre hospitalité à nouveau, de l'occasion de parler des enjeux très importants à notre sécurité nationale et celle du monde aujourd'hui. It's a real pleasure to be back with you today to speak about uh, national security threats that are facing. Canada, and indeed uh, the entire world. And let me begin by saying, while I'm still relatively new to the defense portfolio. I'm uh, hardly new to uh, the the tradition of military service because my family has been engaged in the defense of the crown in North America since way back in the American Revolutionary War. Uh, They were on the side of the United Empire Loyalists. Um, And uh, in fact, I had ancestors in the War of 1812 and the Fenian Raids. Although I'm I'm Irish extraction, they were actually fighting for the crown, Uh, loyal always. Um, And uh, even the Boer War, the first war where I lost two great uncles, uh, uh, one at Vimy and one following the Battle of Vimy Ridge and service ever since, including my father who spent over a decade as a fighter pilot in the Royal Canadian uh, Air Force during the Cold War days flying uh, interception missions over the North Pacific uh, to intercept uh, Russian bear bombers testing NORAD response time. So I grew up in a family replete with uh, a deep respect for the nobility and necessity of the profession of arms and understanding the sacrifices of our men and women in uniform. And I count it as the greatest privilege of my life to be able to serve and work with uh, the men and women of the Canadian Armed Forces, a avec les hommes et les femmes des Forces Canadiennes Armées qui sont Les professionnels les gens de grand dévouement et patriotism et compassion. So uh, I come to this post with that background uh, recognising that uh, Canada has always been uh, a responsible defender of uh, humanitarian values of the belief in, in human dignity, in human freedom, in democracy and human rights. In fact, Just uh, seven decades ago last month, uh, troops from the Canadian First Army uh, helped to liberate the Nazi concentration camp at Bergen-Belsen, where they encountered survivors of Hitler's Holocaust. And just two weeks ago, I was in Holland with the Prime Minister to join with the Dutch people in thanking uh, Canadians still seven decades and three generations later, thanking Canadians for their liberty, as we, of course, as the Canadian First Army liberated the Netherlands uh, in April of 1945. In fact, during that trip, I will never forget visiting the main Nazi transit camp for Dutch Jews, out of whom 100,000 Dutch Jews, including Anne Frank, were sent eastward to the extermination camps such as Auschwitz and Birkenau. And I stood there with two uh, survivors of the Shoah, uh, who uh, had, uh, one of whom was at the camp when it was liberated in April of 1945 by Canadian troops with one of the Canadian troops who liberated the camp. I will never forget her turning to Chip Goodman, our 89 year old Canadian vet, and saying, All we could do in this camp was to hope and pray and wait for our liberation. And you arrived. You were our liberators. You saved our lives. That is the finest tradition of the Canadian Armed Forces, a tradition, I believe, that our military carries on to this very day. This speech is billed leading in dangerous times, Canadians, the Armed Forces, and security challenges. And, indeed, they are dangerous times. Uh, We can see this uh, all across the world, that there is an arc of violence spreading from West Africa all the way to Southeast Asia, which every single day claims dozens and sometimes hundreds of new victims. You know, I regret that in our Western media coverage, sometimes I think there is an implicit prejudice that when victims of such terror in developing countries are uh, killed in bombings and in attacks, it often doesn't even warrant front-page treatment when we see attacks in Paris against uh, an editorial office or uh, a, uh, in, in Copenhagen or in Brussels against the Jewish Museum, quite rightly, uh, these events uh, uh, attract our attention, as did the two terror attacks in saint jean sur Richelieu and Ottawa in October of last year. But just imagine, every single day, there are brutal attacks from Boko Haram in Nigeria, against those who don't share their twisted ideology. Dozens of churches that have been bombed, thousands of victims claim hundreds of girls rendered uh, sexual slaves by that uh, nihilistic organization. Or we can move to East Africa and see the deprivations of al-Shabaab, which just a few weeks ago attacked a college in Kenya Uh, and rounded up the Christian students and slaughtered over 140 of them for the crime of having a different faith. Or we can go north to uh, Libya and see what organizations affiliated with Daesh, the so-called ISIL, have done in recent weeks, beheading dozens of Coptic Christians and Ethiopians, again, for the crime of refusing to abandon their faith. And we can see the same kinds of deprivations throughout the Middle East, al-Nusra in Syria, and of course ISIL or ISIS, the so-called Islamic state in Iraq and Levant, Levant, uh, which has launched a campaign of genocidal terror against the innocent civilians of Syria and Iraq, the ancient Mesopotamia. I'll come back to that in a moment. But further east, we can see the Taliban terror organizations in Afghanistan, that won't be satisfied until they can obliterate every school that teaches girls uh, and every uh, civil society organization that does not share their twisted ideology. To the Diobandi terrorists in Pakistan, who just last week uh, slaughtered over 100 Ismaili Shia Muslims in Karachi, and before that attacked churches earlier this year, and before that have targeted Shia and Sufis and uh, and others who do not share their ideology, all the way down to Southeast Asia, through Indonesia to the very southern tip of Philippines in Mindanao, where Abu Sayyaf, which now affiliates itself with ISIL, uh, in December of last year blew up a school bus, uh, killing dozens. This arc of violence, so, you know, sometimes I think from our perspective, here in this prosperous Western country, we don't, we sometimes see these in laterally, peripherally, and we don't connect the dots. But they are all motivated by a similar kind of dystopian vision of imposing a kind of seventh century political ideology on uh, innocent civilians who do not share that view, and to use violence both as an end and as a means. And of course, The most deprived manifestation of this is found with with ISIL itself in the ancient lands of Mesopotamia. You know, uh, often people in the developed West talk about the rights of indigenous people, and quite rightly so. Let us remember that the primary victims of the most disproportionately affected victims of ISIL in Iraq and Syria are the indigenous people of that region are the indigenous people of Mesopotamia are the Assyrians, for example, Yazidis and others, small minority communities who have had a presence there for thousands of years, who speak there, who speak languages uh, that they have spoken there for thousands of years, whose homes and communities have been there for millennia and yet Daesh ISIL seeks to wipe them off the face of the earth, not just for the future, but indeed they seek to reverse history in obliterating any trace, any archaeological sign, any buildings, uh, any monuments associated with those ancient Mesopotamian civilizations. And so they seek not to project their violence into the future, but in fact perversely uh, into the past. And... This, of course, we observe all of this, and we know that that Canada, as a middle power, does not have the capacity, and nor would it be, frankly, prudent for us to seek to confront everywhere this arc of violence. We do, however, seek to speak for and provide humanitarian assistance to the victims, which is one of the things we've done through the creation of the Office for Religious Freedom to make the protection of vulnerable religious minorities a key pillar of Canada's foreign policy. We've done it as well by being, I think, the fourth largest donor of humanitarian support to the victims of ISIL as internally displaced persons in northern Iraq at camps that the Prime Minister and I just visited, and I think the fifth largest donor to the refugees of the Syrian civil war. And so we must stand in solidarity with those people, remembering that the most numerous victims of that arc of violence are Muslims themselves, peaceable, law-abiding, modest people who simply want to be able to raise their families in peaceable freedom and uh, who are targeted for violence if they are Sunnis in Iraq and Syria because they refuse to join uh, the campaign of violence of ISIL or if they're Shia and they're caught in the wrong place, if they're Ismailis or from other small sects. And so we stand in solidarity, yes, with all of the religious minorities who are the victims of this violence, but also with those from the majority communities who are as well, thousands of them every year. We as Canadians stand in solidarity with all of them. And so the question then is, if we cannot prudently militarily intervene in in every one of those deplorable situations around the globe, then when do we inter- intervene? Why did we intervene in a coalition approved by the United Nations, led by NATO at the invitation of the Afghan government in Afghanistan? And why are we intervening in a coalition of some 60 countries at the invitation of the government and the people of Iraq, with some two dozen countries involved in the military campaign against ISIL? And I submit to you that the criteria which should guide our prudent intervention against such forces of genocide uh, should be when... Organizations of this nature have the ability to begin to develop quasi-sovereignty over a piece of territory to form a state or a quasi-state, as the Taliban did in Afghanistan and as ISIL has begun to do in Syria, in Iraq. I invite you to cast your minds back to last August and September, when every day ISIL was gaining new territory uh, in Iraq, taking New, claiming new victims, wiping out new, wiping out villages, claiming hundreds of new sexual slaves as young as the age of eight, and every day that they gained new territory, every day that they gained new tax revenues and in some cases uh, oil revenues and uh, military equipment and perceived strength and prestige, every day that they did that it, it confirmed in the minds of the small minority subject or, susceptible to radicalization that somehow the claim of this organization to be the caliphate was legitimate. And that is why organizations like this, when they they reach a certain point of strength, can and do pose a clear danger to our own national security. Because as long as ISIL was able to demonstrate, in their mind, the validity of their claim to be a caliphate, as long as they were growing in strength and power, they were increasing their capacity to radicalize and to recruit. We know of some 150 Canadians who have traveled abroad as foreign fighters to join that one organization alone in Syria and Iraq. Any one of those individuals, should they return to Canada, will clearly pose a security threat to this country. If they've gone to join an organization that beheads innocent civilians that claim sexual slaves as young as the age of eight, there is no limit in their minds to what they are prepared to do to target a country that their leaders have explicitly expressed hostility toward. And there is no doubt that the two attacks on our soil against two of our brave soldiers last October were at least inspired by the deprivations of ISIL by two individuals who were unable to travel abroad. And as we know, uh, both today and in in recent weeks, uh, our security forces have succeeded in preventing uh, several other radicalized young Canadians from traveling abroad to join that campaign of violence and genocide. And so while we should not overreact to this threat, while we should not exaggerate it, nor should we underreact or diminish it, we should face it clearly and responsibly. Of course, here at home, while respecting our civil liberties and our democratic traditions, our free free customs, but reminding ourselves that one of the most important civil liberties is is the freedom to live in all peaceable security. And that is why our government has sought to strengthen our national security laws through the recent Anti-Terrorism Act, Bill C-51, which if you compare its uh, new new powers, most of of which are vested in in the courts, uh, it is modest in terms of the capacity to detain would be terrorists, uh, for example, or to seek information about them. And we think it strikes uh, the right balance. But our military, as i said, has a role to play as well. When we see organizations of this nature able to develop the power to project their violence uh, as, as quasi-state actors and able to radicalize and recruit from around the world. And that is why we have deployed the Canadian military at the invitation of the people and government of Iraq. And by the way, when I say the people and government of Iraq, we know that the, the political uh, system in Iraq is imperfect and flawed, And uh, the Prime Minister and I met uh, just two weeks ago with Prime Minister al-Abadi to discuss their efforts, encourage them in their efforts to create uh, unity across all sectarian and confessional and ethnic lines in Iraq, unity in confronting ISIL and this existential threat. And we continue to do so. But fundamentally, fundamentally, there is unity of purpose in Iraq, an amazingly diverse country between Arabs and Kurds, Sunnis and Shia, people of all political, ethnic and religious currents against this threat of ISIL. And they, so they have invited Canada, and, and uh, uh, in fact through the United Nations, any friendly country, to assist them in degrading the capabilities of ISIL, uh, as we have done. And so through the initial deployment, uh, which was extended in, uh, by the government uh, this spring and confirmed through a recent vote in the House of Commons we have deployed assets of the Royal Canadian Air Force, six CF-18 Hornet jet fighters, two recently modernized Aurora surveillance aircraft, and one Polaris refueling aircraft, which are providing critical support to the mission there, integrating the capabilities of this organization. As I said, remember last September and uh, August, when it seemed that this organization might be unstoppable, when it was on... Uh, the gates of Baghdad and claiming new territory every day. While there have been setbacks, even some recently, fundamentally, ISIL has lost territory, lost strength, lost personnel since the International Military Coalition came to bear uh, in the the autumn of last year. In fact, our CF-18s have flown, uh, as of last week, some 570 sorties. Our aerial refueler, the Polaris, has delivered some 8.8 million pounds of fuel to coalition aircraft And our upgraded Aurora patrol planes have conducted some 160 reconnaissance missions. And in the last week, I can tell you that the pace of activity of our Air Force has been particularly high in uh, trying to support uh, Iraqi uh, security forces uh, in their operations against ISIL. At the same time, as you know, we have deployed uh, some 69 Special Operations Forces personnel to assist the Kurdish Peshmerga, around Erbil in northern Iraq in helping them to defend the hundreds of thousands of internally displaced persons who fled Daesh's campaign of genocide, particularly uh, on the Nineveh Plains in and around the city of Mosul. Uh, and I can tell you, having been there again with the Prime Minister a couple of weeks ago, how extraordinarily grateful are the Kurdish people and government and the Peshmerga militia are for the Professionalism and the expertise being transferred, uh, transferred to them by our special operators, many of whom uh, acquired tremendous capabilities and experience during their time uh, in Afghanistan. And so we have helped those militia who just last year were uh, without significant training or equipment. We've also helped to provide them with, with the provisionment of equipment so that they can now as i say not just defend their own communities but the hundreds of thousands of iraqi idps who have fled behind their lines and so i believe that what we are doing is within the best traditions of canada while i was in Air bill i walked to, excuse me while i was in kuwait at the royal canadian air force base named by the way uh, after l'adjutant uh, patrice vincent qui a été tué dans l'acte terroriste à saint-jean-sur-richelieu En octobre dernier, j'ai vu nos CF-18 juste après que le Canada a mené une mission euh, avec six euh, forces aériennes, des alliés, contre euh, une quarantaine des cibles euh, de, de l'histoire, disons, État, État islamique. Um, ils ont frappé toutes les cibles avec succès, sans. Uh, dommage collateral. So I can tell you that our, our, for, our Air Force uh, pilots are regarded as some of the best. And when I was on the tarmac there in Kuwait, I saw the CF-18 Hornets lined up just in front of eight Danish uh, F-16s, Dutch F-16s aircraft from other coalition countries, by the way, which transcend, who, who have been deployed there by governments that transcend the political spectrum. It seems to me that to suggest that Canada should just sit this out when the uh, governments of most of our historic allies are contributing to this defense of the Iraqi people is not consistent with the best Canadian traditions. If the uh, Dutch uh, socialist government, the Danish socialist government the Labour Party of the United Kingdom, the Socialist Government of France, the governments of Australia and New Zealand, and virtually every government in the Middle East uh, believes that there is an obligation to participate in this security mission, it would be contrary to Canada's traditions not to participate. So we are doing our part, and it it is not to say that this will be an easy mission. Of course, there are and will be setbacks. That is to be expected uh, in any military Uh, encounter, and there are, of course, inherent risks, but we believe that Canada is making an important difference. Let me say that at the same time, we continue, uh, while we are compassionate warriors, we continue our tradition of using the Canadian Armed Forces uh, to provide uh, help and support uh, to those who are victims of natural disasters around the world, thanks in part to the significant uh, investments that our government has made in new military equipment. You know, I ask you to cast your minds back to December, just after Christmas 2004, when the tsunami hit Southeast Asia, claiming tens of thousands of victims. The government at that time struggled to respond. At first, uh, there was no response. And then there was a decision to made to perhaps deploy Canadian military, the disaster assistance response team, to Southeast Asia Uh, to assist with disaster relief. But Canada had no strategic airlift capability. We had to uh, effectively beg and borrow from other countries in order to be able to load equipment and personnel to take them that long distance. And nothing was available. So the government set out 40-year-old C-130 Hercules aircraft that had to turn around over the Pacific because of equipment problems. It took us nearly two weeks to get Canadian personnel and equipment on the ground in Southeast Asia following the tsunami. Compare that to what happened following the terrible Nepalese earthquake recently. Within a couple of hours of that uh, a terrible disaster, I was able to contact the chief of our defence staff and say that I don't think we should wait for more information. I think we should begin pre-deploying our humanitarian and then disaster assistance response teams from the Canadian Armed Forces, knowing what appeared to be the scale of the devastation. And so, almost immediately following my direction, the Royal Canadian Air Force at CFP Trenton began loading up one of the five C-17 Globemasters acquired by this government, enormous and expensive pieces of equipment which previous governments refused to acquire, very very deliberately. We were able to load those up with with critical humanitarian equipment and personnel with expertise, expertise in disaster response. And within 36 hours... Canadian military personnel and that equipment were on the ground in Kathmandu, providing relief, water, food, shelter, ambulatory medical care to the victims of the earthquake. That's the difference that a critical investments in our military capabilities can provide to Canada around the world. In fact, we were there before any of our 5 R par- uh, partners, um, Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States, or New Zealand, and we are one of the only... Uh, Militaries to be functioning outside of Kathmandu with some 200 Canadian Armed Forces personnel. So that is why it's so critically important to continue modernizing our military uh, kit and equipment, which we've done not just through the five C 17 Globemasters that provide strategic airlift capability, but also through 17 new C 130J uh, Hercules uh, tactic, tactical aircraft that uh, are allowing us to move equipment around the world much more efficiently, 15 new Chinook helicopters, a coming new fleet of maritime helicopters to, repeat the, to, excuse me, to replace the Sea King fleet. I know you've heard that before. Um, that was actually supposed to be done back in 1993, but the previous government decided to cancel uh, the initial contract, costing hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties and never succeeded in finding a replacement fleet. But I'm pleased to tell you that next month, we will take possession of our first new Sikorsky Maritime helicopters on the East Coast. Yes, that's worthy of of applause, I think. Upgrades to our Leopard 2 tanks, upgrades to our basically complete refit of our light-armoured vehicles, our LAVs, uh, a uh, new M777 howitzer artillery pieces that are the most cutting-edge in the world, the modernization of our Halifax-class frigates. I was just uh, last uh, week... Uh, sailing aboard HMC as Calgary, one of our newly modernized Halifax-class frigates in exercise trident fury off the west coast in the Pacific, seeing the cutting-edge technology that we brought aboard the refitted frigates, and indeed our submarines now actually function and are deployable overseas thanks to an extension of life and refit of that equipment and many other significant investments. In fact, increasing Uh, The the budget for our military by 38% since 2005 um, and setting aside $110 billion in an accrual budget for current and future procurement of new equipment, of course, including the future replacement of the uh, CF-18 fighter jet uh, and the largest shipbuilding, peacetime shipbuilding program in Canadian history, a $26 billion shipbuilding program. Uh, we begin cutting steel this year on the new five new Arctic offshore patrol ships uh, at the Irving Shipyard in Halifax. They will, of course, be joined by new joint uh, support ships, uh, new uh, coastal patrol ships, and the new fleet of surface combatant ships. So all of this is a significant renewal of the Canadian Navy. To, to summarize, friends, this country has always been as I say, a a compassionate warrior. It's a country that has always been willing to stand up, as we did at Vimy Ridge, with tactical innovations, because perhaps we Canadians had the humility to realize what had gone wrong in the first two years of the Great War. We did it in the liberation of Holland and the liberation of Bergen-Belsen. We are doing it today in defending the vulnerable minorities of Iraq from a campaign of terror and genocide. And for all of that, we can be proud of the men and women in the Royal Canadian Air Force. We salute them all, and we wish them Godspeed, and I want to thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> I do take questions, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Danny.
2: So, uh, Mr. Kennedy, just in connection with your recent trip to Iraq, and obviously uh, this issue arising now with U.S. elections and at the top of people's mind, kind of a path forward with all of that baggage and that
1: history. Do you find with this new uh, leadership there that there's a real will and an ability to unite the country more than uh, recent history? In Iraq? Yes, exactly. yes absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt that the, that the last Iraqi uh, government um, had created enormous uh, divisions and resentment in the Sunni population uh, and uh, I think there's every indication that uh, uh, that uh, the new administration and Prime Minister Abadi are doing um, everything within their power to reach out uh, to uh, uh, all of the confessions and communities uh, in Iraq. Of course, this is a matter of enormous complexity, and they have to uh, win and demonstrate trust um, uh, from um, uh, the spectrum of, of, communi- of communities, particularly the, the Sunni Arab community in, in central uh, Iraq. Um, Just before we arrived there, uh, Prime Minister Abadi had been having national unity meetings. He had flown up to our bill to meet with the Kurdish leadership and elsewhere to meet with uh, Sunni uh, community leadership. Um, Because, like I said, uh, while there are political divisions, and some of those were played out in problematic ways in the Senior Officer Corps of the Iraqi Security Forces uh, in the recent past, while all of that is true, it's equally true that... The overwhelming majority of Iraqis, Sunni, Shia, Christian, Arab, Kurdish, want to be rid of this terrible threat of Daesh. So it actually is, in a a peculiar way, uh, a a unifying force for the Iraqi people. And and by the way, I'd I'd like to just extrapolate a bit on that, because sometimes... um, Clever commentators say, oh, Canada is a naive country. We, don't, we shouldn't be involved in this. We don't understand the complexity of the Sunni-Shia divide. We don't want to get involved in that. When it comes to um, ISIL, uh, there is very little Sunni-Shia divide. Let us be clear. ISIL does not represent Sunni Islam. It is a threat to Sunni Islam. It is a threat to Muslims. It is a threat to all of civilization. It unites she, it's one of the things that has united Shia and, and, and the vast majority of, 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 of Sunni Arabs of Iraq. And, uh, that, and, and so we shouldn't let the cynics and uh, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, um, the, the, these, these cynical commentators to uh, undermine what is fundamentally national unity against that threat.
2: Uh, yes, Mr. Sir, I'd uh, like to hear you uh, talk about uh, Eastern Europe for a moment oh, and, and yes. about uh, deterring uh, uh, perceived threats in, in, in Russia and obviously uh, the challenges in the Ukraine.
1: Thanks. I was supposed to talk about that, but I realized I was going long, so thanks for raising the question. Um, so another very real potential threat that with which we must contend is obviously the growing aggression of Vladimir Putin's uh, uh, foreign policy, including most obviously his de facto invasion uh, of Ukraine, including his uh, his expropriation of Crimea, which we will never recognize. Um, Vladimir Putin has articulated what is not an entirely new Russian doctrine, which is that Russia somehow has a right and responsibility to notionally protect all of the Russophone communities of the world. And this if you're living in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, many of the smaller states in Southeast Europe, Eastern Poland, parts of Hungary, if you're living in any, any of those areas, this constitutes a real threat to you. And he's demonstrated that this is not a rhetorical threat, this is not an exaggerated threat, it is a real violent threat for the people of Eastern Ukraine and Crimea. And uh, we agree with our NATO allies that the only language that Mr. Putin understands is a language of strength, and the only way to prevent him from miscalculating and seeking to repeat his clever de facto invasion of eastern Ukraine in the Baltic states or elsewhere is through a policy of deterrence, which is why Canada is participating in, in NATO's Operation Reassurance Uh, It's through which we have contributed uh, CF-18s in Baltic air policing operations. We've contributed uh, a frigate HMCS Fredericton to marine patrols in the Black Sea and shortly in the Baltic Sea. It's why we have some 200 Canadian Army personnel stationed in uh, Poland doing joint exercises. uh, And we've had other assets deployed. This summer, um, some 1,000 Canadian military personnel will be deployed to some of the largest NATO joint training exercises in 20 years. All of this designed to send a message to Mr. Putin of resolve and deterrence on the part of NATO. Uh, We think that is the best way of, again, preventing him from miscalculating and, uh, and expanding his policy of aggression to other parts of Eastern Europe. But all of this, i I just say, is, is a reminder to us why why we can't pretend that we're going to take a holiday from history. I think there was this post-Cold War p- period. Of course, uh, Afghanistan and other missions were uh, a wake-up call from this. But um, regrettably, in this world, there are were, there were always going to be threat, strategic threats, and Canada must always be prepared to deter them
2: and to address them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Adam Kahan. I'm a Vice President of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And Minister, it's my honour to, no, to thank you for addressing us today and for sharing your government's plans to tackle the security challenges that we face. I think it's very well known that Canadians, the Canadian Armed Forces are well respected internationally for the outstanding role that they have played in times of peace as well as in times of strife and turmoil. And as you so eloquently pointed out today, we live in very turbulent times. Security concerns internationally and nationally are at an all-time high, and governments are working to ensure that appropriate security measures are in place to protect our citizens, no matter where they may be, and to safeguard our way of life and the values we hold so dear. So now more than ever, national offence is critically important, important to maintaining and protecting Canada as a safe, peaceful, and law-abiding country. Minister Kenny, we want to express our deep thanks to you and to your ministry and your government and for our armed forces that keep us this safe. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Adam. And again, Minister, thank you so much. You've been so supportive of the club, and we very much appreciate each and every time you visit. And Danny has said, please come back next season. Uh, Before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to draw your attention to the event survey card we've placed on each of your tables. Uh, We'd very much appreciate your thoughts and comments about today's luncheon. Uh, The feedback is always appreciated. This concludes our program today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We look grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about our club, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being an attentive, uh, welcoming audience today for the minister. Our meeting is now adjourned.